Hi, this is Lucy. Before this episode starts, I just wanted to say thank you for all your lovely comments so far about kitchens. I'm so happy you're enjoying it. So just wanted to say that if you'd like to support the work that Lekka does, like this series, you can join as a patron for just £3 a month and that money will help fund production, cover production costs. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash podcast. Research by The Times in 2019 discovered that a staggering 9 out of 10 rented houses don't have a living room. And what this means is that so often the only communal space in these homes is the kitchen. Of my friends, I mean, we all we all live in shared houses. There's like four of us or four or five people in, in one house sharing one kitchen, one bathroom. If you're lucky, one living room. Sean Warmington One lives in a shared house in South East London. This sort of living setup has long been considered fairly normal for people in their 20s like Sean is. But the cost of housing, not just to buy, but to rent smaller places like one beds and two beds, has risen so drastically over the past decades that the number of people sharing in their 30s, 40s, 50s has doubled in recent years. The Office for National Statistics doesn't measure the number of house shares specifically, but they do measure what they call multiple family households. Multiple family households still only make up 1% of households in the UK, but they're also the fastest growing type. This definition can encompass friends of similar ages sharing, but also multiple generations of families living together, as the name suggests. And that's something we're also seeing a lot more of these days. And for these households that fall outside of a particular makeup, living with a traditional fitted kitchen, particularly when you don't have a living room, can be a challenge. There are some people where that actually really works because they all like to sort of sit down and eat together. Like they might be on the same schedule and it sort of turns into this sort of like pseudo like nuclear family thing. Like, oh, we all cook together in the evening. One of us will take turns to cook. For them, it works great because you're still you're still sort of imitating that kind of nuclear familyness. One person can be in the kitchen cooking and they can cook quite easily for four or five people. My house, that doesn't work. Lunchtime in particular, because three quarters of us are in during the day. Most days, we'll all cook lunch. Like in the evening, we might like, one of us might get a takeaway or we might share a takeaway or whatever. But lunchtime, most of us like cook. If someone's cooking in there, I won't try and do anything else because there's, there's one surface here which you can prepare vegetables on. There's one surface here where you put like the pan lids or the cooking utensils when you're actually doing the cooking. If it takes 45 minutes for someone to cook lunch and then eat it and then clear up, that doesn't really work for three people. So that it, it does just mean that if like any one of us has somewhere to be in the afternoon, we will need to be cooking at the same time. And the question is like, why don't why don't we cook the same, like share meals and cook the, cook the same? It's like, well, I have a different diet to one of my, the other flatmate, and he he makes like loads of Italian food. He makes like pastas and like I cook weird food, as in you know it's just food that like one or two of my flatmates wouldn't wouldn't eat day to day. I'll, I'll cook like a a steamed fish, like a Cantonese steamed sea bass or whatever. And like, it's not what he'd choose to eat for, for, for dinner most of the time. I really like cooking for people. And in my kitchen, you're facing the wall and there is 
there is no space for anyone else in that kitchen really. Like they can stand in the doorway or by the sink. And both of those are slightly behind me. So I'm cooking and I'm like kind of like turning around and trying to trying to speak a little bit more and then I'm actually I'm kind of concentrating and I can't I can't I can't actually keep doing that. Yeah, it's not a particularly sociable place at all. At all. So the one communal space in many rented houses isn't even designed to be sociable. The fitted kitchen was originally designed for a certain type of household. It deliberately rejected the idea of cooking and cleaning taking place in a room where the whole family spent time together. And it established the idea of a separate room as a workplace. But things are different now. Shouldn't we be building kitchens that fit their users? Or are flexible enough to work for different types of households? rather than forcing people to shape their lives around an unsuitable, unsociable kitchen. You go in the back door. It's a really small kitchen. It's tiny. It's like a tiny little box. Gas hob. So you have the stove. Worktop. Counter. Sink. A small fridge. Underneath the draining board was the gas fridge. If more than one person's in there, everyone starts to get a bit flustered. That's the general vibe. This is Kitchens, a podcast series by Lekka about the most important room in the home. I'm Lucy Dearler. They left out any element of human emotion and uh, emotional intelligence and what people needed from kitchens. This kitchen is not, it's not suitable for me. It doesn't enable me to cook. Kitchens are more clones of each other than living rooms or bedrooms are. Why why is that? Episode three, The Unsociable Kitchen. I like recipes that are low effort or low like physical effort. The standard fitted kitchen isn't just unsociable because it was designed for a certain type of household. It's also unsociable and unsuitable in many cases because it was designed for a certain kind of body. I like to have minimal movement. So I love big bubbling pots. That's my favorite thing. If just a big pot and just throw everything in and be stirring it and I feel I feel like you know a witch with her cauldron and I'm just or you know like a I'm cooking for a big you know family and you know everyone's gonna come and sit around my big bubbling pot that I love that that's my that is the best cooking vibe I think for me this is Katie Pennick she lives in North London with her partner Alex and her two frankly adorable cats felt a noodle more of a, sorry, should we should we tip for them in a different room? <laughs> no, honestly, it's fine. I think we'll just we'll just nod to the fact that uh, Noodle is attacking the sofa. That's fine. The flat they all live in together has a kitchen that's pretty typical for lots of London flats. It's part of their living space. So you can see a very sort of um, standard kitchen setup uh, where you've got sort of a corner or two corners of a room that are connected with a counter that's about, I suppose for a standing person, be like, I don't know, 
waist high, belly high. I actually have no idea how tall people are or like where it comes up to on your body. Would you say that's waist height? Well, I would bet you any money that counter is 36 inches high ah. because every single counter <laughs> in the world, just about, is 36 inches, three feet high. So yeah, I guess it's optimised, isn't it? To be a standing person mm. has elbow room to chop on. Exactly. And for me, that's my shoulders. It comes up to my shoulder blades and my collarbone. Katie uses a wheelchair, so the whole idea of a kitchen optimised to a standing person is completely useless to her. And what could be more unsociable than a kitchen that doesn't allow the person who lives there to cook in it? I don't cook in the kitchen. The kitchen is not where the, the cooking happens, <laughs> or it's at least where the kind of final stage of the cooking happens. For everything, for all of the prep I do, I do it on my table which is in the middle of my sort of living space which is at the right height for me as I'm sat in my wheelchair. The counters of the kitchen are far too high. It means that if I ever wanted to chop something, you know, my elbows would be up here. You don't, you can't get any leverage to chop something. The social model of disability is just a way of thinking about disability and it suggests, it says that you are disabled by the world around you. So you're not disabled by any kind of medical diagnosis that you have, you know, anything going on with your body or your mind. It's not a something to do with the individual. It's something to do with the environment. You're disabled by the barriers that exist in society, in the built environment, in the world around you. We are all only as able as society enables us to be. It's really important to remember that we all have needs. Every single human being on the planet has needs. The only difference is that your needs or non-disabled people's needs are accommodated. They're met every single day through through everything that you do, through all of the world. The world has been built to accommodate your needs. And my needs aren't accommodated, you know, my needs aren't met. Um, and that's what makes me disabled. And yet my needs are labeled as, you know, additional, right, or special, or whatever word you want to use. Pretty much everything in a standard fitted kitchen is built with a standing person in mind. A person who can move easily around a space on foot. So if you're physically unable to stand or you can't stand for long periods of time or you're visually impaired or you have another disability that might impact how you move around a confined space that's built for non-disabled people, then immediately it's very clear that the kitchen just isn't designed for you. And because of how centred the fitted kitchen is in our understanding of food and cooking, this inaccessibility applies not just to the kitchen, but also to written recipes and ways of cooking. When you make a new recipe, do you, do you plan your movements before you start? Yeah, yeah. I read it, like, I read the recipe fully and I think, what am I going to do where? It is usually that I will start at my kitchen table chopping and preparing everything and then move over to the hob. But I do definitely, when I'm reading a recipe, I think, how am I going to do this practically? Where am I going to be doing for this? What order will I do it in? That's another thing. I often do things in a different order to what the recipe will tell me to, because the recipe is written in a way to optimize time. But 
I'm not optimizing time, I'm optimizing energy, and I want to do things that will require the least amount of movements. Any time I'm cooking, it, I'll always start by getting everything I need out and ready and like setting up my workspace. So I have my, my kitchen table in the middle of the living area and I will get out my chopping board, my knife, and then a few bowls to put in the things that I've been chopping. I wanted to understand how much work Katie has to do to adapt recipes so they work better for her. And for this recipe, all I need to chop is a bunch of spring onions and pak choy. So I asked her to talk me through exactly how she makes one of her favourite recipes she eats all the time at home. It's a quick and easy noodle recipe from a really popular cookery site. And then I cooked it myself exactly as the recipe is written in my own kitchen. Step one. Heat a large frying pan or wok over a high heat. I've got my large frying pan. High heat. Squeeze the sausages out of their skins straight into the pan. I'll also be making the sauce in a bowl. Oh yeah, also once I've done that I need to wash my hands. So I've got to go over to the sink. It is tahini, it's soy sauce, it is chilli oil and some, like, cold water. Need to add the five spice powder. Oh, I should have got this out before because... Oh, there we go. So I've got everything out. Spoons, bowls, knife, chopping board, everything's ready. I am a very disorganised cook. And this is important for me because I don't like to keep going back and forth to different areas, like going to the cupboard and going to the, you know, whatever. I can just sit there and do it all in one go, which is really nice for me. Chop the spring onion, chop the pak choy, put that in a bowl, ready to go. Leave to fry for five minutes, stirring occasionally to break up the meat until crisp. So we've got to fry these guys until they're crisp. Oh, also sausages, <laughs> pork sausages, which you take the skins off and like crumble them up into small little bits. Do that, set that aside. Meanwhile, slice the pak choy and separate the leaves. Finally slice the spring onions. Just gonna keep stirring my sausages. So I'm having to step, I'm actually on the, I'm gonna cut my pak choy on the work surface next to my hob. So I just have to step over, but you know, that's a movement every time. Alex usually does this bit. Big wok on the hob. Fry the, the sausages in five spice. And then we add in udon noodles. Okay, so now the next thing I've got to do, according to the recipe, is make my sauce. Add the greens from your bowl keep frying okay so now i add the noodles all right so noodles are in with the pak choy stalks sauce is going in the pan and then add your sauce from the other bowl (laughs) and it's just done i mean yeah that was really quick but a lot of moving around It's how I do everything. You know, cooking is just another example of 
living in a very inaccessible world and having to find a different way to do things. And it's second nature to me. It is just, I, if I'm presented with a situation and I think, okay, well, I'm going to do it this way because that's the way that works better for me. You might have noticed in the process that Katie described so in detail that there are certain aspects of cooking, like frying, for example, that her partner Alex usually does. And this is such a central thing to this whole idea of a sociable kitchen for me. Why are we so focused on a kitchen being efficiently and functionally designed for one person to cook in it, when for so many households it would make much more sense to design it for multiple people to be able to cook in it all at once? I very much see the involvement of others in cooking like a very integral part of cooking and the cooking process, and that doesn't make you any less of a chef. It doesn't make you any less um, talented as of like if you need assistance while cooking from whoever that might be from your partner from your flatmates from your personal assistants if you have them you know whatever it is get people involved in cooking and like ensure that like you are your needs are being met and that you are supported to to do the cooking so I think that's another part of it it's not just about the physical infrastructure of the kitchen and trying to make that as accessible as possible and trying to widen that out to be as inclusive as possible. It's also about widening out cooking and what cooking means and the idea of cooking to be as inclusive as possible. And for many people, that will mean needing assistance. And that's fine. As Katie explains here, there's also an element to this about what is expected of disabled people in a domestic setting. When I go to the shops, (laughs) just literally just going down the street, going to the supermarket, buying, you know, some vegetables and someone will come up to me in an aisle and be like, you're so brave. You're so brave. You're such an inspiration. I'm honestly, I am so inspired. I'm like, by what? This like avocado? (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm literally just doing the grocery shopping. You know, I know people aren't being malicious by it and I, I know people mean well, but unfortunately it does reveal that you your bar for what disabled people can do is so low that you think me here with like my bag of carrots is brave i mean come on now let's just let's step back a bit this is ridiculous i'm not brave it's a bunch of carrots but that's you know you learn that i've i've you know i was i was born with my impairment i've been a wheelchair user my whole life And I've always experienced that. I've always experienced those attitudes. I've always experienced people having such a low expectation of me. And anything I did was like, oh, remarkable. And you know, when people feel sorry for you and express that pity all the time, it's really hard to not internalize that and think, oh, no, I I guess I can't do anything. The prevailing kind of attitude is not that disabled people would like care for others you know cook for other people so yeah it's not just that I'm not expected to cook for myself I'm not expected to like cook for my partner or um cook a nice meal for my family that is so contrary to what the negative kind of attitudes and stigma is and I think the kitchen has really played a big part in that of like excluding disabled people from that kind of that section of life the kitchen being kind of the the homey heart of a of a house of a of a life you know where the 
where the food is made that nourishes all the family members and and it's you know it's very like what's the word like giving it's very like caregiving mm. and I yeah I don't see that disabled people are kind of meant to be in that I feel the image there is that the disabled person or people are you know at the table they're going to have the food given to them and it's also very difficult as a disabled woman to kind of face this really weird contrary expectations like quite mutually exclusive different expectations because the kind of this gender role this like very patriarchal gender role is that the woman is the the caregiver the woman provides for the family the woman the woman's place is in the kitchen (laughs) the woman is meant to cook for her partner and cook for her family so I've on one hand I've got that kind of in mind and that that kind of being being learned or being fed to me but then on the other hand I have this image of like the disabled person is fully dependent on others and like is needs a caregiver right to to cook for me and um and doesn't and doesn't have any role in providing for anyone else and that's really weird and really hard to balance um a lot of disability theorists have talked about this before is this idea of like rolelessness so where do I fit into this like one on one hand I'm being told that my place is in the kitchen <laughs> on the other I'm being told I'm I, well, I mean I physically can't get in so I think m- quite a few disabled women would agree with me on this as feeling like I know that I, I know that that idea is sexist as in a woman's place is in the kitchen right I know that that's sexist I know that we're meant to be rejecting that but I want to do that because <laughs> because that's that <sighs> It's really hard to explain. It's like, that is classically what is expected of women. And I am a woman, so that applies to me too. Even though it's like really reductive and regressive and bad, it's you You still kind of, yeah, a strange way you just want to be a part of that. The world has been built for a very particular body and mind. This is not suitable for so many people. And so that, that's kind of the premise behind inclusive design and universal design, which is why aren't we building a world that works for everyone rather than this one very particular body? Inclusive design is available to disabled people if they have the money to pay for it. There is, in theory, assistance available in the form of the Disabled Facilities Grant, which will pay for adaptations to meet owners' or tenants' needs. Katie told me about someone she knew who had successfully applied for a Disabled Facilities Grant, having finally, after seven years, been allocated a social housing property that actually met her needs. She had an accessible kitchen installed with key features like... It had to be suitable for navigating in a power wheelchair 
Uh, that included being able to clear under the sink so that the person using the wheelchair could wash up. It included oven and cupboard design at sitting level so the person in the wheelchair could cook for their family and put things away and everything else. It also included lighting that was suitable for people with visual impairments. The idea was that the kitchen would simultaneously meet the needs of everyone living in the house, not just the needs of the non-disabled people. And that means that no one feels excluded. Everyone's needs are met. And being in the kitchen is egalitarian and democratic. Everyone is caring for each other. No mean feat. And one that so much kitchen design completely fails on. For me, the future of kitchens is really about turning the central island into a series of, if you like, working tables. Getting everybody around a table to do lots of different things at the same time is one of my missions. So sociability, facing into the room, you cannot have a conversation with anybody if your back is facing the room. So cooking devices, stoves against the wall, sorry, change it round. The kitchen design that the vast majority of us can afford, if we're even lucky enough to own a house or live in a house where we can have control over the kitchen, involves consulting a representative of a particular company that sells kitchen units and working out what arrangement of their their quite inflexible fixed size products fits best in the space that you have. And this doesn't always work. Like I got a new kitchen a couple of years ago and we just had to rule out Ikea because I have a U-shaped kitchen, like it runs all the way around uh, three walls. And because it's a small space, the depth of Ikea cabinets just meant that there was a tiny space in the middle of the kitchen and it just wasn't going to work. And if you want something more than this, you have to go bespoke. And that's what legendary kitchen designer Johnny Gray has devoted his life's work to. I was at some party in, in, in a cocktail party in Fulham. This very posh man came up to me and said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, yeah, I design kitchens. And he rolled his eyes at me. He said, well, what does that involve? You know, because in those days, designing kitchens was really a non-starter. You know, it was either placing boxes or, well, nobody, nobody ever thought about designing kitchens, really, I don't think. And a, a journalist from the Sunday Times ever heard this. And she came up to me and she said, I'd like to write a story about your ideas. This was published on, a, on I think it was the 10th of August, uh, 1980. As it happens, I was in bed with my then-girlfriend for the first time ever, and we got married four years later. But we went down to the newsagent and bought this newspaper. The title of this piece was Why This Awful Fixation with Fitted Kitchens. And it was the most amazing moment for me, probably one of the most amazing moments in my career. And I think I had something like three or 4,000 inquiries. On the Monday morning, I had five people outside the front door of our little tiny house in Kensington saying, could you design me a kitchen? I mean, it was incredible. We've had systems and scientifics and rigid modernity. What we need now is to make kitchens more habitable. A kitchen should be a place of hospitality, not just a machine to prepare food. That's one of the quotes that is attributed to Johnny from the article that hits such a nerve with the British public. Why did it have this effect? Johnny thinks it was a reaction to the lack of homeliness in fitted kitchens at the time. And I'm, I'm not going to be at all naturalistic about it, but the only really successful fitted kitchen companies were the German ones. And they'd really worked, you know, they'd rebuilt Germany really fast after the war by systemizing kitchen cabinetry and appliances. 
and fine, but they left out any element of human emotion and uh, emotional intelligence in the way that kitchens, what people needed from kitchens. This understanding of the importance of human emotion in a kitchen makes sense when you hear stories about Johnny's childhood and his formative years. Sociable kitchens were at the centre of his family life. And from a very young age, he was encouraged to actively start shaping them. My mother had a small cottage kitchen in a little house that uh, cottage she bought in just outside Petersfield in 1956. It was freezing cold because the back door of the house, which is actually the main door of the house, came into this kitchen. And we were always cold in this kitchen. So one day she said, would I build a wall to basically keep the draft from the the back door coming into the kitchen and we turn it into a nice little cosy room. And that was almost my first ever woodwork project. I spent many hours in the freezing cold building this pine kind of wall and built a little door with it and she loved it and she gave me all this enthusiasm. But you know, children have this lovely kind of resilience, I think. And good parenting is partly about, you know, making uh, children feel they can achieve things, probably that they can't, but they think they can. And there was another sociable family kitchen that had a huge influence on Johnny's approach. This was the kitchen belonging to Johnny's aunt, the food writer, Elizabeth David. When you came into her kitchen, she had three pine dressers and a pine cupboard. Her kitchen was an unfitted kitchen, really. Johnny built Elizabeth David a sink unit and table to go along with her other freestanding kitchen furniture. When Johnny and I first spoke on the phone about this series last year, we talked quite a lot about Elizabeth David's kitchen. And one of the things Johnny said about it really stuck with me. It wasn't super efficient, but by God did you want to be in it, you know. The kitchen wasn't perfect. And even Elizabeth David herself complained about its functionality and the lack of light. But it was a room that drew people in and people wanted to be in there. These experiences, along with Johnny's studies at the Architectural Association and the interesting portfolio of work he was starting to build up after he graduated, started to crystallise into something really unique in terms of kitchen design. On a very elemental level, he rejected many key design factors of the fitted kitchen that was growing in popularity then. And kind of as we still know it today, things like only having closed cupboards with everything shut away. Food is beautiful. Think of all those incredible fruits and things that don't need to go in the fridge. Why don't you put them in bowls? And that's not my original observation. That was my aunt's. As you squeeze in the door, she had bowls, these lovely white pillowite bowls, full of lovely things. Somebody might come into her shop and have given her some walnuts or some figs, or and she would put those out for a day or two. And immediately, as you come in the door, you know you're in a kitchen. Yes! the clinical efficiency is surrounded by fitted kitchens and the obsession and the use of by the advertising world of basically using hygiene to make people feel ashamed of their kitchens, their traditional kitchens, and by having things that were fitted so there was no dirt in the corners and there was no, you know, uh, no space for, for kind of um, any sort of, um, I don't know, homely element. It was all about being clean and, and slick. Now, the corners of a room define the space. So if you build up cabinetry into every corner, you lose your sense of, how would I put it, of a room, of the opportunity to furnish. 
And historically, bits of your own things that you found are really important ways of triggering off belonging. And you can't do that in a kitchen if you've got cabinetry everywhere. So one of my philosophies was to minimise the amount of eye-level cupboards. If you think about a fitted kitchen, you think they're planned efficiently. They're not, because you have a counter, you have a gap, you have an eye-level cupboard, the eye-level cupboard is half-depth, that's not proper storage and you can't get into it and you can't put doors on the front that you can line with small you know, jars and, and packets. So actually, if you do a proper pantry, a pantry saves you a lot of unnecessary, expensive and annoying storage at eye level, which doesn't really work that well. And people want to be able to customise the wall space. It's not just about the cabinetry. So if someone's got photographs of their family or old paintings or whatever it is, or they just want to have a really beautiful piece of artwork, it's the spirit of the furnished room entering into the, the core design of the kitchen. In the mid-80s, Johnny started working with the furniture company Smallbone, and together they released a range of freestanding kitchen furniture called the Unfitted Kitchen. And the ideas that he'd been working on for years about how to reimagine the kitchen were further developed. When we were developing the Unfitted Kitchen, this creative director, Peter Shepherd, was helpful to me because he started to sort of look at it almost like in a bird's eye view, and he said, Johnny, look, what you're really doing here a lot of the time is creating micro-worktops. And we came up with this phrase together called dedicated work surfaces. So, and, and this is a, a really good principle of kitchen planning. So what you need to do to get efficiency is not to have just long counters where you can do stuff. You want to have dedicated areas where you do one or two particular things. And then you can position tools around it. You can position that in a particular place. If you think about this, what you want to do is have somebody prepare food really without having to move. So when you stretch your arms out, you know, you've got 1.4 metres or or five foot or whatever it is. Try and have your core stove and cooking area within five feet. And then you've really only got one step to to go. Now, that applies to a big or a small kitchen. Another of Johnny's key principles in his designs is what he calls soft geometry. It's a rejection of angles and sharp edges. L-shaped cabinets, a square kitchen island in the middle of the room, The working triangle? Think again. You wayfind by basically being threatened by sharp objects and by having a sense of of being unthreatened. So if you have sharp corners in the middle of a room, you are alerted to that. Even though they aren't a very big threat, they're there. So imagine you're walking down a narrow tunnel, let's say, I don't know, four or five foot wide, and it's lined with sharp rocks. You behave, you walk very carefully. Your brain doesn't allow you to think about very much else apart from getting not getting hurt because fight and flight response takes over from other brain um, functions. Now imagine doing the same thing, only it's lined with silk upholstery. You know, you're wanting to touch it. You don't even think about it. If you've got a wheelchair, you do not use a wheelchair by turning right angles. And actually human beings don't walk in right angles. They walk continuously like water flows, really. The key tenets of Johnny's approach to designing kitchens are very well positioned to be applied to notions of inclusive design. No eye-level cupboards. Ideal for someone who uses a wheelchair as it means things aren't out of reach. No continuous work surface, but instead dedicated work surfaces set flexibly at specific heights for specific tasks. Likewise, it means that work surfaces can be raised or lowered to suit people seated or standing. No sharp corners, but rounded edges instead. 
much safer for people with visual impairments or for those prone to falls? And so Johnny's latest incredibly ambitious project feels like a natural progression. At the heart of all the work he's done so far is making kitchens sociable. If you look back over his numerous previous projects or read any of the countless broadsheet features on him over the past few decades, you'll see how he's ripped out rooms, torn down walls, done whatever it takes to make big, beautiful kitchens that aren't hidden away and that the people who live in the houses can spend time in together. And this is an extension of that, but expanding on Johnny's ideas and designs in order to make something which has the potential to be truly life-changing. Probably 10 years ago, Newcastle University appoints a guy called Professor Tom Kirkwood to head up a sort of ageing research centre. And he wrote this book called The End of Age. And then some bright spark in Whitehall says, right, well, we need a national centre for ageing. And it turns itself into that. Professor Tom Kirkwood started to hire scientists to work with him on the project. And one of those joining him was Professor Peter Gore, whose background is in medical product design, but also ageing research. Peter Gore comes to do a talk to a kitchen industry event, which I'm at, and basically sort of showing the opportunities and people's attitude towards ageing. And a lot of it is inherited from 19th century medical... I'm being very simplistic here, so forgive me. 19th century medicalisation of age. Ageing, sorry. And so we think about it as deterioration from day one, and it's never about other things. Never mind the fact that you can start jogging at the age of 70 and, you know, you'll be fine. He's been basically very rude about kitchen, the kitchen industry, kitchen designers. And actually, I'm secretly totally on his side. So we make friends, and he invites me up to Newcastle, to the National Centre for Ageing, to do a talk on kitchen design. And the night before, I've had a terrible flu and I'm feeling shit. And I, and I do what I regard as being a terrible talk. Everybody loves it. And Professor Tom Kirkwood's in the room. And he comes up to me after and says, Johnny, fantastic. How lovely. Please come and work with us, sort of thing. And then three years ago, Osborne, the last thing he does before he fires himself over Brexit, as it were, is he gives them 15 million quid, kind of match funded by the EU, to create the National Innovation Centre for Ageing. And that's where we put the prototype. And that's where it is right now. The prototype Johnny's talking about is a kitchen a so-called 4G or multi-generational kitchen, designed with multi-generational family households in mind, but actually just really delivering a great piece of inclusive design that could work for all kinds of households, all kinds of people. But the core principles are kind of what I've already said to you, which is it's all about eye contact, it's about people engaging with conversation, supporting many different activities. Every work surface that you can have can rise and fall, and then you've got that nice big curved larder in one corner so the wheelchair can access it. But also then you can strip the walls back so you can have other things on the walls. And then you've got, on top of all that, you've got some of the sort of core tech safety elements that Peter is working on. And they include drawers that will lock with people. So if people got Alzheimer's, they won't, they won't be able to use the drawers. It's got um, flooding warnings. It's got things that will turn the gas off. And then my contribution really is this uh, fantastic um, work surface where you can use cordless appliances. This is um, a French company called Eurocarer, and, and have a look at them, they're really fun. Eurocarer make a cooking surface which incorporates induction technology into a seamless glass ceramic surface. This means you could cook anywhere on it, rather than having to rely on the traditional 
two hob, four hob, six hob system, your whole surface, your whole kitchen island could be a potential cooking surface. This is safer than a traditional hob too, as induction glass ceramic doesn't get hot to the touch. But also, thanks to its truly flexible nature, it makes it much easier for Johnny to realise his dream of everyone cooking facing into the room, making eye contact with each other. The prototype kitchen is beautiful. Like all of Johnny's designs, it's incredibly aesthetically pleasing. And the video I've watched about it quite a few times just makes me want to reach out and touch the curved wooden surfaces and rounded edges of it. As well as the practical elements, there's details like bespoke wallpaper designed to appeal to the nostalgic. The National Innovation Centre for Ageing is slowly opening up to the public, but until then... The only people allowed in the building are the cleaners. And the kitchen is designed um, to appeal to your emotions, as you can imagine, after what I've just said. And a lot of it's to do with touch. And the cleaners really like cleaning it because it's full of things you can touch. But really, it's really sad. It hasn't really um, yet been utilised. But the spirit of what we did is good. And the research we've done on it hopefully will lead to a lot more research. I need to now take it down to much smaller kitchens. I'm so excited by this project. I've become a huge fan of Johnny's work over the past year or so. So many people I met while making this series told me I needed to speak to him and speaking to Johnny was a complete joy. His passion and conviction are really infectious. Look, honestly, I couldn't afford one of Johnny's bespoke kitchens. His previous clients have included people like Trudy Styler and Steve Jobs. But... I'm in awe of the care and craftsmanship that goes into every single one of his designs. And every single one is designed to be sociable and fit the user's needs exactly. And although his personal designs are very expensive, actually his ideas are applicable to so many kitchens. And they've really changed how I think about kitchens. I'll tell anyone who will listen now that we shouldn't be washing up facing the wall. We shouldn't be cooking facing the wall. We should be able to cook and be sociable and make eye contact at the same time. So one thing I wanted to really ask Johnny before we finished our conversation was about a different kind of accessibility than we've been talking about. Because the ideas behind the multi-generational kitchen, they're important. They're actually pretty vital and would be life-changing to so many people. And so, really, I want them to be as widely available as possible. And you you said that you're looking at bringing it into smaller spaces, but do you think this is going to be something that will be available to people who, you know, don't maybe have the money to put a huge... Lucy, I really... I so hope and pray so. There's a little bit of a problem here because you asked a very good question right at the beginning, which I didn't really fully answer about why the UK kitchen industry, why is it so incapable of innovation? But there's also a very interesting uh, stat and UK manufactures almost all of it. Now, there's, I think it's something like 70% of the cabinetry market is actually supplied from within the UK. So cabinet wise, we do quite well. Part of the reason is because of, of the pricing of people like Howden's their pricing is incredibly effective and their business model is really clever. 
but it doesn't lend itself to innovation because basically they're using builders, as you know, to do the selling and the mm. designing. And that is clever on one level, but it, it's, there's no way you're going to get innovation like that. If we could get together with a big manufacturer, so I have to become the salesman here. So that's why Peter Gore and I are trying to, to set up this new company, which will be a joint venture with Newcastle University. We hope we've got um, a CEO as from, well, next week we've, been, we've interviewed somebody really good. And his job will be to develop the company and find business opportunities and a way we can introduce these low-cost kitchens into people's lives. And if you said to me, uh, can we do it? I think I could say to you, look, you know, I've not done it. I don't know. But there are two or three things that we could do that would make a difference straight away. Who knows what our next kitchen might look like? We don't know what the future will bring. But I'm hopeful that at least some of Johnny and the rest of the team at the National Innovation Centre for Aging's work will trickle down to the kitchens of the people who most need it. Lekker is written and produced by me, Lucy Dearlove. Thanks to my contributors on this episode, Sean Warmington One, Katie Panic, and Johnny Gray. There's a kitchen's print scene available featuring original essays and illustrations that's being released alongside this audio series. You can buy a copy now at lekkerpodcast.com forward slash kitchens. Original music was composed for the series by Jeremy Warmsley, with additional music also by Jeremy and by Blue Dot Sessions. Research and production assistance from Nadia Medi. If you've enjoyed what you heard on this episode, or generally you enjoy listening to Lekker, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you've really enjoyed listening and would like to become a patron of Lekker and support production financially, you can do that for £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash Lekker Podcast. on the next episode of Kitchens. I never knew that kitchens weren't fitted kitchens. And really, until I was, um, well, I don't know, 10, 11, whatever, it never occurred to me. I thought everybody had a kitchen like ours. In the the 70s, when people started to talk about fitted kitchens, it used to make my brother and I giggle because we we thought, well, everybody had a a fitted kitchen when, when we were growing up. Of course, they didn't, but we did because a prefab kitchen is entirely fitted. A big part of what we were talking about was how the design of her house helps her to parent in a much more stress-free way. So this is in the design component in that she can wash the dishes whilst the kids are in the bath and she can see what's going on at all times. They're like so close to each other. You could never do that in a traditional home.